0: Now, I had 15 sermons to do 41 psalms, so I had to choose particular psalms. It's book one, and we'll continue to look at book two and so on and so forth, maybe over the years, but we're looking at book one, which is Psalm one through Psalm 41, and so I had to pick 15, and so I picked Psalm 38 for a reason, but I kind of wonder, as I started studying it, uh, why? Uh, in the providence of God, he wanted me to look at this psalm. I'm sure initially I was thinking this, that there are six penitential psalms, okay? Six psalms and uh, 150 psalms that teach us how to repent. And I think that's a good thing to come clean uh, with God. Uh, Get things out on the table. It's just like in a relationship with somebody. When when there's kind of an injury, right, uh, there needs to be confession so we can be right with each other. Let me tell you what's very interesting about this psalm as we come to read it. David ties sin uh, to the physical ailments that we might be experiencing this morning, Um, and so it's it's kind of a tricky psalm. Uh, But before I get into that, let's uh, let's look at Psalm thirty-eight. And I think you'll agree with me as you read the psalm that sin and sickness are tied together. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble. Crushed, and I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longings, longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me, and the light of my eyes is also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, I do wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me with When my foot slips, for I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O oh Lord, at my salvation. And this is God's word. And let's ask him to speak to us through his word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you that we're never quite ready to come into your presence. So we have many things on our mind. Uh, sometimes it's our own sin and our, our being overwhelmed by that. Sometimes it's uh, the things we want to do this afternoon or business deals But, Lord, we need you to graciously speak to us both through your law and through your Son, the Lord Jesus, who has saved us from the lost curse. Lord, I pray especially for those this morning who are in darkness. Maybe they don't even realize it. Maybe their health is due. According to our text, Unconfessed sin. But Lord, repentance is a gift of God. We cannot make ourselves feel sorry. We cannot try harder to be better Christians. For Lord, the Christian faith is a life of faith. And so, Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you give us the eye of faith to see you and to respond to you? And we ask these things in your name and for your sake. Amen. Now, for a moment, I want you to imagine that you uh, purchased an old home. Now, I've done that many times. I've done a lot of remodeling work. But you've uh, purchased this old home that's been renovated, and everything in that house is brand new. Brand new roof, brand new paint job, new heating and air system, new appliances, uh, new tile in the bathroom. You've got to have a new tile in the bathroom, right? You've got to have granite uh, tops in your kitchen. It's your dream home. You finally have your home. And so about a month after you are in your dream home, you are one evening enjoying a French roast coffee in the study where there's this nice uh, fireplace where you have your gas logs and you're reading the New York Times bestseller. And then you hear something. And what you hear is a bit of a commotion uh, that's down in your basement. Now, you've never really been down in the basement because after all, it's a basement. It's an old house. You knew it was kind of cleaned out. But you go to your door and you hear a little bit of rustling down in that basement. And then you uh, open the door and you start going down there and you flip on the lights and uh you see just a team of cat-sized rats in your basement. So what you do is you just cut off the light and you go back upstairs and you get back to your book, right? You, You feel fine. It's not what you do. Because you see right there at the bottom of your house is all this stuff, nasty stuff, going on in your basement. And so what do you do? You call the exterminator, and you deal with the situation. Now, obviously, a lot of y'all know where I'm dealing, where I'm moving with my illustration, don't you? I think this is a perfect picture of how we live our lives. Uh, we're trying to get everything upstairs to look great. Right. Everything's fine upstairs, and so you look for the right job and the right income, you want your kids in the right schools. I was talking to a teacher here recently, just yesterday, that said, "You know, it's very hard being a teacher now versus ten years ago because parents are so demanding, especially uh, Christian parents. Because my kid doesn't make that grade, they don't get in the school. We've got all this stuff lined up. You're trying to get that upper room uh, in order, the the top part of the house." right children's program if you're single you want to find the perfect mate if you're married you want to have the perfect marriage you want to have the perfect house i could go on and on and on but if you notice that somehow as much as we seem to strive for all these things there seems to be this low grade temperature of unhappiness in our life There's kind of an unsettledness. There's kind of an insecurity that's there because down deep, you know that there's stuff in that basement. There's stuff that's in the the depths of your heart, and you're not really dealing with it. And so what it actually brings in our lives is kind of this malady, what they used to call the melancholy. You know what that's like, don't you? This low-grade fever that you have in your life, you have no energy. You ever notice how many people don't have energy today? I just don't have, I don't feel good. I don't have energy anymore. I'm just so tired. This is especially true among Christians. Uh, We have been given the gift of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, to be witnesses of Christ. And yet we're just too tired. Too tired to be involved with the body of Christ. Too tired to call up Justin Clement or, or Elizabeth and say, how can we help you with, with uh, RUF? Or, or to call Joe May who was up here working with international students. It's a great need. These international students, they're, they're lonely and they're discouraged. And, but we're tired. And so God in his grace wants us to be aware of this malady. I'm telling you, it's because God is good, because God uh, is gracious. And so, according to our text, there might be things that he is bringing into our lives, into my life, to show you the malady is real. And that you're living with the eye of flesh versus the eye of faith. And that you're living according to the flesh versus living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ in the life that I now live. I live by faith. Right? We have to have these afflictions brought in our life by God's grace because we have become and can become, all of us, quite cavalier about our sin. We just don't even think about it. I mean, we're, we're evangelical people. We're into the grace thing. And so we're not really understanding the importance of dealing with sin that's really there in our lives, unconfessed sin. That's what I think our text is talking about. So here's what I want us to see this morning. God brings discipline in our lives as a loving father to break the fevers of latent sin this fallen world infects us with. Now, obviously I'm addressing this to, to, to Christians, but this is true as to unbelievers to a certain extent too, and I want to come to that later. So hang in there with me as, I, as I'm engaging as a minister our people. But First John says this, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you all see that in that text? And that doesn't mean that you can't accomplish things in the world. It can't mean that you can't be the best at what God's called you to be. I really believe that. If you're a doctor, you should be the best doctor because you're a Christian doctor. If you're an athlete, you should be the best athlete. You should work harder than all the other athletes. Why? Because you're a Christian and you do it for the glory of God. But you're always doing things well aware that these temptations that are there that begin to bring this low infected fever in our lives that bring melancholy in our lives and lack of energy. Now, before we look at the body of the text, I just, I just have to say this. I didn't really want to preach this sermon. As I started looking at this text, but, you know, I'm bound by the text. As a minister of the gospel, I must say what this text says. Because it's hard enough to get anybody to even think about sin. And matter of fact, if you're already going, oh, there you go, these Presbyterians, sure, they sure love talk about sin. Well, it's because you're a sinner. And I'm a sinner. And we tend to smooth it over. uh, But I hesitate because this text teaches us not only should you look at your sin and deal with your sin, but it's saying that the reason some of you might be sick is because of sin. Y'all know where it says in 1 Corinthians 11 when we do the Lord's table? And we're given instruction about the Lord's table. Many of us take communion, don't think that much about it. But the Apostle Paul is very clear that if you partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, which means you're flipping about it, then you're eating and drinking not life but death because faith is not attached to the elements. And so, where some people are growing in Christ and their marriages are flourishing and their lives are flourishing, you are eating and drinking condemnation. I think that's what, that's in the New Testament. So, But let me tell you why I'm really concerned about this, because you have to be real careful about this text, because there are some of you who are sick, and it has nothing to do with sin. Okay? I was in the hospital this week several times. But there's a beautiful young woman who's been attending our church. Uh, Some of y'all know her. Uh, And uh, she woke up. Uh, about uh, almost a week and a half ago and went and said, y'all need to go to the doctor. Goes to the doctor. The doctor says, you know, you need to, you, we need to get your, you examine. And, and so found out she had a tumor. And you know what? She had to be operated on within eight days. Let me tell you something about this young lady. She loves the Lord Jesus Christ. I have no doubt in my mind that she is not under the knife because of her sin. There are some of you who are struggling with depression. Some of you might struggle with it all your life. I don't know. Many of you... As a matter of fact, the statistics would say very, very high that you are on some medication. I talk to people all the time on medication. I really don't... I, I think that's a blessing of God. I work with uh, Steve Telitsky, and, and he's a counselor, and Flesh McClellan, and others. And we talk about this, uh, about somebody's need. And, and in fact... Um, in I remember years ago reading about a, a preacher named Archibald Alexander who was a great uh, preacher 150 years ago. I think he taught at Princeton Seminary. But, he was, but, but he, when he had to preach on the law, the Ten Commandments, because there are hard-hearted people in his church, you know what he would do? I remember reading this. I'll never forget. I was reminded of it last night at a wedding I went to that he would get on his horse and he would ride out to all the people who had the melancholy. He would, he would lovingly go to people who struggle with depression and have since maybe all their lives and he would say, now John, Mary, I've got to really preach uh, towards some folks and it doesn't apply to you so don't come to church Sunday. The last thing I want you to do is go down the hole because you beat yourself up enough. But always in this congregation right here at Redeemer, I have people who are tender of conscience, who need to know that God is with you in the midst of your affliction. And then there's some of you, and you know who you are, whose hearts have hardened because of the gospel of grace rather than grace bringing you to a point where you're repentant and knowing the love of God, you become cavalier about grace. And so maybe the solution is not another pill to kind of deaden the senses of your sin against God and against those who live with you. So I think this is clear in the text. And there's three things to look at that I think you'll see. And uh, the first uh, is this. Now now the question is, okay, so David's afflicted, but he believes God's merciful. How does he work his way through this? Because we've got to work our way through this. Well, the first thing to see is that he acknowledges that he's suffering. He's not a stoic. And at the same time, he's not this person who's just running out to everybody and saying, I'm dying He comes to God. And in verse one he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. David's crying out to God. And why does he do that? Well, let me tell you something about David. David was a man who knew the scriptures. For whatever his failures were, and there they are, they're bigger than day. We talk about David. Everybody talks about David's sins. But we only talk about a couple of them. We don't talk about the ones that took place when he was 38 and 39 and 40 and 46 and 49 and at the end of his life where he's taken a census as though he built the kingdom versus God. And there's a curse upon the people. But one thing that David knew was the Bible. And uh, he knew the law of Moses. And so David understood that uh, there's, a, there's a true God. Uh, you see, the reason Moses' writings are so important to us today, because if you want to know why things are the way they are, just read the first three chapters of Genesis. Now, David did. And David understood that God is the creator. He's not some God that's out there, gods with a, on the coexist bumper sticker. He is the true God. But David also understood that when he created us, he created us human beings in God's image, but man fell. That Adam and Eve sinned, and when they sinned, that's why everything's messed up, okay? That's why there's evil in the world. David believed that. David understood that. David understood that in Genesis chapter 6 that God wiped out the whole earth. Because of the sins of man. I don't think we have that view of man today. Do y'all think we really have that view? It's like, come on, you've got to be kidding me. We're wonderful people. Well, just go ask your spouse. Is she willing like a flood every now and then? To at least scare you? And again, if this doesn't resonate with you, then the rest of the sermon won't make any sense because you're probably healthy and sleek. But the psalmist says that in 73. He says, listen, the pagans, they have no problems. So why do I? They're sleek. Everything's great. But that's not who I'm addressing. I'm addressing you this morning who are are getting to the point where you're so depressed, so discouraged, so sick. Maybe some of you have cancer. Maybe some of you are going to find out you have cancer this week. But in spite of all of these things that David knows about God and knows about man, the thing that gets him crying out in the midst of his stuff is that he believes that God is a God who's here. When you wake up in the morning, he's there. When you sin at 10 o'clock, he's there. When you run into the back of somebody like I have at least 10 times, and that was before there were cell phones. I was thinking about my beautiful wife. Just ran right in the back of people. But, uh, <laughs> when my brother committed suicide, I knew he was there. You see, David understood this, and so he cries out. And you know he cries out? He starts giving God his symptoms. And you see him all the way from verse 3 all the way to verse 11. There's no soundness in my flesh, verse 3. There's no health in my bones. Verse 5, my wounds stink and fester. Now, he probably had some skin disease. And if you know anything about the Jews, if you had a skin disease, nobody's touching you because you're unclean and couldn't go into the presence of God I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all day. I go about mourning. Verse 7. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. Have you ever heard of tension? Your back starts hurting and every part of your body starts hurting. Have you ever thought maybe it's because you're not resting? Because you think God's against you. He's not for you. And so you work and you work rather than resting and resting. Verse 8, I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. Have you all ever heard of panic attacks? Man, they're huge today. I mean, I bet if we took a poll in here, I bet 25% of people in here have had panic attack. I've had one. I remember uh, when I was at Furman taking a Greek test and it was all irregular verbs. And I, and I panicked. I said, uh, sir, could I like, go to the restroom before I wet my pants? All these symptoms are here, but notice then in verse 11, it says, My friends and companions stand aloof from, from my plague, and my nearest kin, my dear ones, they stand far off. Now, how many of you are experiencing this today? Maybe, you know I mean, you've gotten so messed up, nobody even wants to have anything to do with you. Maybe you're there, I don't know. That's certainly what we see with David. You know, uh, when I was at seminary, I, I took uh, 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 w- one of the papers I had to write was on death and dying. It was, it was writing about people who are dying, what they deal with. And it was a book by Kathleen Keebler-Ross, who was an expert in this area. She's not a Christian, I don't think. But she began to describe what it's like for a person who's dying. And she said, you know, we grieve that one person, but they grieve everybody. Because they're losing everybody. And then she went on to say what it, how it works. She says, initially, everybody hears the news, they hug you, they're sorry. And then they'll come by to see you and, and to bring some things. But what do you say to somebody that's dying after a while? So after a while, they begin to disengage the wives, the husbands, the friends. And they go from hugging and kissing to where they just kind of wave at the door. I think this is what David uh, is experiencing. But the question is why the suffering? Right? He's suffering. He's saying it. That would encourage you this morning if you're depressed or you're anxious or you're thinking about suicide or you're you're just so overwhelmed because of a continual pain in your life. Whether God heals it or not, you cry out to him and say, Lord, my foot hurts. I'm tired of these migraine headaches. I'm struggling with this anxiety. Say it. Talk to God. Let it come out of your mouth. But why the pain? Why the suffering? And this is where you have to be careful because you see there's lots of reason that pain comes into our lives. Uh, Sometimes we see that uh, the reason we suffer is because God is sanctifying us. He's setting us apart. He's at work in our lives. Peter's real clear about this in 1 Peter chapter 1 when all the saints are being dispersed through persecution they're going what is going on and he writes them to encourage them he says don't be surprised of all these afflictions these have come so that your faith which is much more precious than gold might be proved to be genuine you see the only faith that's going to you, get you in heaven is not your faith it is one from God and so God brings things in our lives to sanctify us right so so that's one reason. Another reason that we uh, sometimes feel pain is because some people aren't going to believe unless some of us suffer. You understand that? Oh, yeah, Hal, I know that you know the doctrines of grace and you're a theologian. You study a little Greek and Hebrew. and uh, Let me ask something. Would you burn at the stake for the gospel? Would you suffer that kind of pain? I don't know. But you know what? If you study anything about church history, Throughout church history, there have been men and women who've been set on fire and suffered so that other people like us who are thick might believe. So it's not for that reason. But sometimes it's because God is doing things so big that we don't understand in the cosmic realm. There's a real devil. And sometimes God wants to go, look at my servant. They'll remain faithful. You don't understand. But according to our text, those are none of the reasons. You know why? You know why he's suffering? Because of what he tells us in verse 3 it's because of my sin. He confesses his sin well how does he work through this sin so, so you got to acknowledge the, the fact that I'm suffering we don't always know why do we but do you ever ask the question just go well I guess I got the flu today as though God didn't have anything to do with that or maybe your temperament whatever your temperament you know the, the temperament that you have and some of you are melancholy man and some of you need to be more melancholy right but God knows how to deal with the melancholy. He knows how to deal with those who probably are just kind of so boneheaded. They, those are the people who never listen to you. In fact, my wife showed me something very funny. She knew I was preaching on the sermon, and she showed me this uh, cartoons of people who are really discouraged and the other people that don't get it. And it shows uh, this person with their arm cut off and they're bleeding. And, uh, you know, the person that doesn't get depression says, well, just suck it up. But we need to acknowledge that we're, we suffer. And we need to ask why we're suffering. But notice uh, how David works through his his suffering. First, uh, David, in David's case, he, he owns up uh, to his sin. Verse 3, we just said that. Verse 4 says, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. In other words... Uh, he's just kind of sitting out there, not dealing with stuff in his life, and all of a sudden this great flood comes, and he's overwhelmed with it. He's overwhelmed with it. Why is he overwhelmed with it? Well, because if you know anything about David, after he had the sin with Bathsheba, he hardened his heart. He wasn't budging. And can I can I tell you something? You will not budge if the Holy Spirit does not make you alive. You know, you can talk about free will and God's sovereignty all you want to, but the Bible doesn't use those terms, ultimately. It uses terms dead or alive. And you're either dead in your sin, and you don't give a rip about what I'm saying, and you're going, man, I hope he's done by 12. Or you begin to go, you know what, you're right about that, and maybe there is something wrong with me. Well, David acknowledges his sin. Let me tell you this week. uh, On Friday, I got word... That not somebody comes to Redeemer, but I got word that somebody in, in my sphere of influence here in Athens, Georgia, uh, I'm sure y'all don't, do not know this person, but they have been not feeling well. This person's uh, married uh, and has uh, four kids. And uh, when go see the doctor, when go see the doctor, I don't know, if it, maybe it's a guy thing. But finally, his stomach pain was so great, he finally went to the doctor on Friday. And so uh, my son calls me to tell me about the situation. And, they, and, and the doctor went to the person's spouse and said, he's terminal. We, we could have done something about this. We could have done something about it. But he didn't come in until it's too late. He didn't deal with what was going on inside. You see, sin is real. Matter of fact, can I tell you this? You know why everybody really dies? It's not cancer. It's not getting hit by a Mack truck. Uh, it's not, uh, it's not uh, suicide. People die because the wages of sin is death. And so David gets it. And so he confesses with his mouth his sin. But notice this that gets you through it. I think that David, uh, that got David through it was the fact that he still believed that God was with him. Notice what he says in verse 9. In verses 9 and following are kind of momentum toward the end of the psalm as he's working through it. So if you're willing this morning to go, Man, I, you know, I, maybe, maybe the reason I am depressed is because I'm so bitter. I'm so angry and there's no pill going to get rid of that. You don't hear me saying don't take pills, did you? I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to you who won't deal with a simple solution, which is your sin. But notice what David says, uh, verse 9, Oh, Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden uh, from you. You see, David is basically, even in the midst of admitting that he's sinning, he's saying, Lord, I know I've sinned, but I long for you. This is the great mark of a Christian. What's wrong with me? But I trust in you. You know, it's very interesting. Notice in verse 11, the difference in verse 9 and verse 11. Look at verse 11. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin. They stand afar off. You, you see, I, I tell you what, honest to goodness, if anybody knew you the way God knows you, everybody would stand afar off, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they? Second row, third row, fifth row back there. If, I've always said, you've heard me say many times, if you could take your top 10 sins, put them on a placard, and nobody can, you can't sin, but everybody else can. How many of y'all come into church this Sunday? Nobody, but I know that about y'all. I got mine back here. You see, you can't see them. But not God. Not God. David understood that. You're not alone. And so sometimes God has to bring this pain and inflict pain in our life because we're so stubborn. But also... Not only do you have to confess your your sins to God, you really need to confess your sins to one another. And you say, where do you see that in the text? Well, all the book of Psalms, they're all open confessions. They're all a hymn book. We're supposed to confess our sins to one another. Does the New Testament say that? If you're not a Christian here today, let me tell you why you're so skeptical of us. I don't blame you. Because we don't even know each other well enough to even have to confess our sin to one another. But to know one another is to be exposed let me, let me illustrate this way before I come to, to my last point. Um. You know, we do communion every Sunday. And everybody's standing up. And the assumption about you is that you're going, I need Jesus. I'm a sinner. And I need Christ. Again, the table will be fenced. You'll be told, hey, you don't want to do this if you're not, you know, if you're not willing to admit your, your need for Christ. I didn't take communion last week. That's the first time I hadn't taken communion in about a decade. Because I felt my heart latching down. You ever felt your heart do that? Like, I will not forgive. And I knew without a doubt I I couldn't take communion. Matter of fact, I think it was Jeff kept trying to serve me communion. I'm like, I'm not... Not I'm doing, not doing communion. But you know what? You can't stay that way long, can you? If you're a Christian. And if you can, God have mercy upon you. You need to ask God that he would bring real pain in your life so you might understand the pain that was inflicted upon him to deliver you from these bitter thoughts and unforgiving heart. Do not play games. Do not play, because, trust me, there are going to be a lot of deacons and elders and preachers that aren't going to be in heaven. Why? Because of pride and arrogance versus humility. And then the last thing to say is he, he leaves himself in the hands of God. He leaves himself in the hands of God. And, uh, and that's verses 21 and 22, am going to read it. But, but, let me, but let me say this for some of you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're going, man, that's what I don't like about Christians. Oh, always talk about negative. Man, I'm not coming back to this church. Well, I ain't gotten the good news yet. I'm just trying to be frank with us. But you say, well, you know, I, I, I don't really think I have anything down in my basement. I don't feel that bad about myself. <clears throat> well, well, I tell you what, then if you don't go down in the basement, go out your front door and go down to Sip's Coffee or Jittery Joe's or, and hang out with your friends. And then maybe you need to ask them, if there's something going on with you that affects them. Can't even live up to your own standards. Where do you go? How are you going to cover your your, uh, things that you do against other people and you're not a Christian? Where are you going to go with your guilt? Let me tell you where you're going to go with it. You're either going to uh, maybe get medicated because you feel bad about yourself or you're going to deny that you're really that bad versus... Repenting, But if you repent, there's no repenting apart from a God who's there. You understand that? But not for us. Notice what he says in verse 21. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Let me tell you what David is doing. David works it all through, and he comes to the fact, and he says, You know what, Lord, I'm going to wait for you because I know that you are going to be gracious to me in spite of myself. And he believed that, and he acted on that. But he believed that there was a coming Savior. He knew he was a king, but he knew there would be a greater king than him. who would forgive and be merciful. And that king is Jesus Christ. You know, what the great, one of the great signs of, of being a Christian and maturing as a Christian is you wait. I mean, throughout the Bible, everybody's waiting, aren't they? Joseph waited in prison for 14 years. What'd he do wrong? Nothing that I know of, other than he was a braggart. Then you have his brother. Um, I'm sorry, not his brother. You have uh, Isaac and Jacob. There you go, Jacob. Jacob was a scoundrel, right? And he had to wait uh, 14 years. But all men of God wait because they know that God is good. You know, God said, let there be light. Bam, and there was immediately light. I mean, God created, whoo, creation. But when God said, let there be forgiveness, it took thousands of years. You know why? Because sometimes it takes a while for us to percolate on the fact that we're sinners. Sometimes God has to wait for you to get how hardened you are. But when you do, guess what? It says he will not forsake you. And I want to tell you why he won't. Because Jesus, the second Adam, was forsaken for your sin this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Called him father throughout his life until he is on the cross. How do we harden our heart against that? Let me tell you. God is gracious and merciful. He'll forgive you all your sins. Christ is our substitute. But all of us, let's get real about this. Let's be genuine people that go, you know, I am not what I should be, but Lord, I know that you're good and gracious. Let's pray to God.